listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Essential number one. If you'd like to, I love to hear y'all say it with me as we read together. So let's just say these. If you don't mind where you're at, let's read them together. Essential number one. The Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. This is the essential that has to do with bibliology. What is it that we believe about the Bible? And essentially, we believe that the scripture teaches and that Jesus confirmed in his ministry that the Bible holds authority authority that no other writing holds it holds authority that no other person holds we believe that the bible alone is capable and able to tell us instruct us how we are to live our life the bible alone gives us the only information we have about who god is how we're to understand him it's the only authority that tells us how we are wired spiritually it's not a biology book. It doesn't tell us how our pancreas works, if it even works at all or whatever that that one that that we have that doesn't work. It, It doesn't tell us that, but it tells us how we are wired as humans. And no other book has that authority. In fact, we would say that while all truth does not have to come from the scripture, all truth must pass through the scripture if it is to be uh, remaining true. Like we said last week, gravity is not taught in the scripture, but you know what goes up must come down. And so while gravity is not taught in the scripture, gravity must pass through the scripture in order to maintain its truth. And when folks have a problem with miracles, especially those that Jesus performed, we would say scripture does not deny the truth of gravity, yet scripture says that Jesus has authority over gravity because what did he do when the time was right? He walked out to his disciples on the water. So we would say that scripture does not have to be the source of all truth, but all truth must successfully pass the test of scripture in order to remain true. So the Bible alone is authoritative. It's inspired. It's God breathed. It comes from God. It's inerrant. It teaches no error. There are no contradictions in scripture, though there are places that seem to give us trouble. It's not a problem with scripture. It's a problem with our inability to understand what has been laid before us. But God has given us the Holy Spirit, those who know Christ as Savior, and the Holy Spirit is there to guide us into truth. That doesn't mean he's going to explain everything we want him to, but he will guide us to see that scripture is inerrant. It is trustworthy in the original documents. The Bibles you hold in your lap are not inspired, though they represent at 99.6% accuracy based on all of the manuscripts we have, an accurate reflection of the inspired writings. 
Kevin, can we trust our Bible? You better believe you can. It is the world's foremost, history's absolute pinnacle literary phenomenon. The scripture is, you can trust it, but the inspiration is connected to the original documents and not to the copies that man touched. So we move to essential number two. Essential number two says, and we'll read that out together, God is Trinity. One God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can't explain this. We can't take God and and boil him down into an apple pie, which is crust and filling and top. We can't do that. That's There's not anything in our world that is like God. He's one God in three distinct persons. He's not an egg. He's not a shell and a white and a yolk. God is also not one God putting on three different outfits, putting on his father outfit when necessary, putting on his son and his spirit. That's not the way we're to understand God. He is one God eternally existing in three distinct persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Together they make up Yahweh. Well, explain that, Pastor Kevin. I can't understand it. I can't explain it to you because I don't understand it either. I just believe it because the scripture has revealed it as such. And Jesus confirmed that very fact when he said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and other places where the Father Father, Son, and Spirit are identified as God. We believe that is essential. To depart from that is to depart from Christian orthodoxy. Essential number three. We would say that, say it with me, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. How can your cup be full of Pepsi and Dr. Pepper at the same time? It can't. It can only be 100% of one thing at a time. Well, then how can Jesus be fully God and fully man, not intermingled, not one overshadowing the other? How can he be both God and man at the same time? The answer to that question is simple. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that's how he has revealed himself. In his self-emptying, he set aside He self-emptied himself in glory. Whatever that means, he set aside his rights as God so that he might become human. He did not stop being God. He just of his own will set aside, I think, his rights to exercise his godness at his disposal Maybe, that's just me trying to wrestle in my mind, but he set it aside so that he might be born into humanity just like you and me having the exact same human nature that we have with one exception and that is a three-letter word, starts with S, ends with N and it is he had no sin but otherwise fully and completely human. In his holiness, he was a sufficient sacrifice. In his humanness, he is identifiable with every man, woman, boy, and girl. In his godness, he was 
capable of doing what we could not do in and for ourselves. He paid for our sin on the cross as a human being, as never stopping to be God, the God-man, not a superman, not a, a figment of our imagination looking real, but not, no, fully God, fully man. And on that week, we discovered that most of us probably think about Jesus in a way that would be, have been described in the early centuries as heresy. If you go, all of us? Yeah, pretty much. We all kind of think about Jesus as being more of or less than one or the other. But the orthodox statement is fully God, fully man. Essential number four. The human race, let's say it. The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. We argued that scripture teaches that every man, woman, boy, and girl is guilty of sin because of the decision of the first man and woman who were in innocence given the opportunity to obey or disobey. And so with Adam and Eve's sin, their guilt was transferred all the way down through human history from person to person. We said that was, that was imputed Guilt, that means their guilt has been added to my account. Their guilt is mine by imputation. Because of their choice, guilt for that sin has been passed down all the way to the most recent baby that's been born in our family, which was uh, Amy Baranski's uh, new grandson was born on Friday, Saturday. And uh, that's exciting. And guess what? Guilt of sin was uh, imputed. To that baby boy. And, and you know what? That's what scripture says. But not only that, not only was the guilt imputed, but sin was passed down to us. That's not just the guilt of Adam's sin, but it's the guilt of my sin. Because what do I do as a sinner by nature? I sin. I'm not a dog because I bark. I bark because I'm a dog, right? I'm not a dog, by the way, but you get what I'm saying. So it's the nature that was passed down to us is that if you weren't already guilty of Adam's sin, guess what? You're guilty of your own because by your very nature, you are going to sin. The human lost, the human race is completely lost, meaning it can't save itself. No matter how hard it tries, the human race can do nothing to change his state of being a sinner. He can't be good enough to obtain the holiness required to be in a right relationship with God. So we understand scripture to teach that the human race is basically helpless sad situation. But essential number five says, let's say it together. Salvation is made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Human race is lost and dead spiritually. So what can we do? We can do nothing. What did God do? God provided salvation. God provided a way for our sin to be dealt with. Well, what is that way? That way is one, singular and only. It is by the death and resurrection of Jesus, our substitute, who put on flesh so that he might pay for our sin. 
He might take on our sin, die in our place, was buried, and was raised to life in demonstration of victory to secure that his sacrifice was sufficient, that death had been defeated, that sin was no longer holding us, and that hell no longer had rights to us. Jesus is the salvation that has been made possible, his death and his resurrection. You say, how many roads lead to heaven? Only one, the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essential number six. How do we get this salvation? Well, essential six says salvation, say it with me, salvation is received by faith alone in Christ alone. God has provided salvation and it's in the substitutionary death and resurrection bodily of Jesus Christ. Salvation has been made available. How does that salvation go from being available and an opportunity and a free gift of God to affecting me? How do I get that that I need, which is salvation? The scripture clearly teaches that by grace we've been saved through faith. Faith in what? Not faith in faith, not faith in the church, not faith, not just faith or belief in God, but faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that he paid for our sin and that he was raised to secure my justification. It's believing in the one who came and died as our substitute and raised bodily. Just because you believe in God does not mean you are saved. Let's quit calling people who say, you know, I just, you know, they get up on the award shows and they take the thing. I just want to thank God for this. Well, he's a Christian. Uh, Not necessarily. A lot of folks believe in God. In fact, the devils believe. That doesn't mean they're Christians as the book of James tells us. So faith in Jesus, faith in his death and resurrection as the only payment for our sin. Kevin, you're, you're being exclusivist and you're saying that you've got something and only what you have works and what everybody else has doesn't work and you're just trying to polarize yourself and, and keep people out. No, no, I'm not doing that at all. I'm simply telling you what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So salvation can only be received by faith alone and Christ alone. That's essential number six. That was last week. Today, essential number seven. Let's say it together. In the future, Jesus Christ will physically return to this earth. This is almost the extent of our teaching on the end times. Now, that doesn't mean mean that this is all we believe about the end times. In fact, in our doctrinal statement that you can find on our website, we have a lot to say about what we believe about the end times and how the future is going to unfold and what we believe scripture teaches. But when it comes to essentials, there's a lot of room to argue under the umbrella. At least though, you've got to maintain that Jesus Christ will physically return at some point. To deviate from at least that is to step outside of the umbrella of Orthodox Christian teaching. And we believe that is so primarily because of the facts that are taught 
about the return of Jesus. And so we're going to look at these things in terms of the facts and then a little bit about the debate that's going on. And then we're going to look at a particular passage of scripture that Jesus uh, tells his disciples a story. And it has very much to do with his return, but it has more to do with their life in anticipation of his return. So we're going to look at that and then we're going to try to practically apply this so that you can walk away from here having heard God's word and know what you need to do today. By God's grace, we'll get there. First, we're going to look at the facts. What are the facts about the return of Jesus? What does God's word clearly say? Before we get into that, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're not going to be reading in fact, I don't know that we're reading anything out of the book of Revelation. When, you're, when you think, if you know anything about the Bible, you think, okay, we're talking about the future. Kevin's going to read the book of Revelation. He's going to teach that. No, we're staying away from the book of Revelation. Not because we don't believe it. We fully believe it. It's inspired and inerrant in the original documents. We absolutely believe the book of Revelation. But there's so much debate about how you're to understand the book of Revelation. We're not going to anchor that essential belief that in the future Christ is going to return on, on, on how one is to understand a really a very bizarre sounding book if you've ever read the book of revelation it's got a lot of you know sounds like a great movie to be made it would be exciting with special effects we're not going to anchor that there because the return of jesus doesn't have to be anchored there it's factual all throughout the scripture and we're going to just we're going to believe it and one day maybe i've Folks have asked me, Kevin, when are you going to preach a series on Revelation? I said, well, I've got it on my legal pad of things I'm going to preach. It's just the last thing I plan to preach before I retire. So that's just, that's where it's at. And I mean, so much involved in prophecy. You say, are you scared of it? Yes. So let's move on. All right. So it's, I'm not scared of the prophecy. I'm just scared of teaching it and being wrong about it. So we're going to let Revelation be true. We're going to let it sit right there. What are the facts about Jesus' return if we don't even look to the back cover? The essential, and here's where your handout begins. As essential as the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. What is, what is the ascension, by the way? We hadn't talked a lot about that. Uh, Jesus was crucified. He was buried on the third day. He rose from the dead. Then he was with his disciples for about 40 days after his resurrection, being seen by a whole lot of people, a lot of factual people, a lot of eyewitnesses seeing Jesus alive and writing about it and telling about it. And it's not any big secret. And then on the, after 40 days, Jesus left this earth in spectacular form. I would encourage you to read Acts chapter number one, where we see Jesus ascending up into heaven. So spectacular that the disciples stood there and just gazed up into heaven like, did we just see that? And then all of a sudden the angels were standing beside them looking up. Well, what y'all looking at? Well, who are you? Where'd you come from? Well, we're here to tell you that the same way Jesus went up, he's going to come down. Now y'all go get busy about what he said. So he ascended just as essential as the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension are to the gospel. So also is Jesus's promise to return. In John chapter 14, in the same chapter where he said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Before he gets to that, Jesus said to his disciples, verse number two of John chapter 14, he says, in my father's house are many 
rooms. Now, you look up there and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Well, I understand that. King James translates that word as uh, many mansions. And we've been thinking about those Hollywood, Bel Air mansions that we're going to go into. That's not what John was saying. What John was saying is that in my father's house is plenty of room for everybody. I've got a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place. This is really cool. And I'm not going to get into it, but this is a really cool passage because what Jesus is talking about is wedding tradition. Okay, this is the idea. This is very familiar to them. I go to prepare a place. This is what happens when a groom and a bride become betrothed. To the community, the bride and the groom are basically married. I'm with you. Yes, you with The families would agree. Yes, him and her her and him. Okay. Now, what would the bridegroom have to do? The bridegroom would have to go away for a period of about a year and establish himself. Fathers of daughters, listen up. You might want to employ this in your daughter's life. He got to go away and establish a place for her. And then once that place is established, he's got his feet on the ground. Things are cooking. Now he's ready to come back and get his bride. And they have a a great celebration and it's a party all week long and they don't go on some honeymoon and then come back and live with mom and dad for a little while no they leave from the party and they go to their home and they begin their life there this is beautiful when Jesus is like I'm going to prepare a place for you now just go ahead and wipe the image of Jesus in the presence of the Lord with a tool belt and a hammer, you know, and don't, don't, don't think he's coming in, wiping his sweat going, man, I, okay. So father, we had what? 20 billion rooms I need to make. I got like 19 billion done. It's just going to be a few more years. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. It's imagery so that they would understand he's going away. Are we married yet? Not quite yet. Are we as good as married? Oh, you bet we are. When he comes back, what's going to happen? I'm going with him. And I'm going to be with him. And it's going to be party time. And it's going to be exciting. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And y'all know if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back. Well, Jesus, we're afraid you might forget or you might get delayed. Or maybe you might not be able to get back to us. Well, I don't know, guys. What do you think would be the worst thing that could happen to me while I'm gone? Well, you might be killed. You might die. Just hold on to your seats. You're about to be amazed. I'm going to overshadow that. I'm going to defeat death. Nothing is going to keep me coming back. Did he go away? Well, the eyewitnesses said that he did. Did he say he's coming back? Yes, he did. So is he coming back? Absolutely, he's coming back. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come Again, so also is Jesus' promise to return. As essential as the crucifixion and resurrection are to the gospel, so is his promise to return. The events surrounding and including Christ's physical return to the earth 
is a word in the Greek called the parousia. I've got it written up there so that you can write it down. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. This is a word that comes right out of Matthew 24, verse 3, when it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus had been teaching, and he had been telling them about things that were going to happen, fantastical things about the destruction of Jerusalem and the fate of the Jewish people at a time in history. And obviously the disciples said, tell us, Jesus, when are these things going to happen? And tell us about your coming. That Greek word coming is parousia. Well, theologians, Christian theologians have taken that idea, that word, the parousia, and they have built their understanding of his return, his coming again. And that's been the theological word that refers to all of the events that happen when Jesus comes. We have to be agreed that Jesus is coming, but how that's going to happen, we can fight a little bit about it's greek translation of the word coming or presence the event specifically referred to next on your handout as the second coming the event specifically referred to as the second coming represents when god's redemptive program reaches its fulfillment go back to me go back with me to the wedding reference so in the old testament god created and man, man disobeyed. So now God moves into a plan of redemption from which he, by his sovereignty, decides to make a people from which the Savior will come. And so through Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, he creates the people of the Jews, the, the Israelites, who will be his people through relationship. They will be his people reflecting what it looks like when a, when a people will put their trust in God and will walk with him. And, and, and he showed us what it looks like. He also showed us what it looks like when people refuse to obey God and, and how that we can walk in conflict with him. But out of this people, he created all kinds of types and shadows and things that would point to a particular one who was going to come. And at that appointed time, the one came, that, that anointed one, that Messiah, that king to be. And yet God chose to bring him into a stable, to a lowly, poor, begging type family from the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus was born and everybody knew without the the attention of an earthly father, or at least the one that Mary was engaged to. So a birth riddled with conflict. And out of that stepped this one called Jesus from Nazareth, who preached himself as the Savior, who preached a gospel of repentance and then was killed by his own people by rejecting the message they put him to death, all as a part of God's plan of redemption so that the bridegroom might come out of the grave, identify his bride, go away and be ready to come back and get her. That coming back that we call the second 
second coming, when Jesus returns, that event that is yet to happen, we see that as the completion, as the final act, as the conclusion of God's redemptive story of mankind. It's the final movement. Don't you love it? when a movie gets you right or a book or some kind of story like it just draws you in and then all of a sudden there's a conflict and that conflict just builds and builds and build, and, and you're just like I don't know I mean I know there's only 25 minutes left in this movie but I don't believe the hero's going to be able to escape and help the people and save the day and we're on pins and needles we're wondering is there another book am I going to have to go through another one of these and then all of a sudden boom it happens And the hero comes out victorious and you're like, yes, yes, yes. You love that because that's how God's designed us. And that's the way he's put together his plan. Oh, it's dark right now. It's conflict ridden right now. It's all going to come crashing down for nothing. Uh Uh-uh. Because if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. We just hadn't got to the last act yet. We just hadn't got to the conclusion. But it's going to happen because the scripture says it's a fact. We see this coming as the Old Testament day of the Lord. Let's let's just read, if if we can, an extended portion of Zechariah. Anybody do their devotions in Zechariah today? Probably not, probably not. But you might have read through it. Here's what Zechariah says. In chapter number 14, verses 1 through 11, Zechariah said, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. That that's been taken away from you, well, it's going to be brought back and divided amongst you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem in battle, and the cities shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Looks pretty dark. Then the Lord, verse 3, will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other, uh, the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azael. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, uh, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones will with him on that day there shall be no night cold or frost and there shall be a unique day which is known uh, to the Lord neither day nor night but an evening time there shall be light on that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea it shall continue in summer as in winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth 
on the day, on that day, the Lord will be the one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall be, shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate and to the corner gate and from the tower of, of uh, Hananel to the king's wine press. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction Jerusalem shall dwell in security why because the king has come back and has fought the battle and has won the victory and on that day everybody's going to be aware so we look at Zechariah and those of us who look at the book of Revelation and go we believe that we look at Zechariah chapter 14 and we go over here and we go now Now, over here in Revelation chapter 19, about halfway through the chapter, we hear about one who comes back on a white horse. Sounds like the greatest WWE-looking wrestler fella you've ever imagined. Just, I mean, they describe him as this warrior-looking guy with with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword in his mouth, and his word is just powerful. And you just, you know, you just want to look and go, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Well, that sounds a whole lot like what that old prophet described that was going to happen way back centuries ago. Sounds a whole like maybe what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get my bride. But what if they won't let us go? You don't have to worry about that because I'm coming back to get what's mine with authority and with power. It's just the facts of Scripture. It's just what Jesus has said about himself. These events we would call the day of the Lord. So what are some things that we know to be true about Christ's return? Well, let me just give you four. Christ's return will be a couple of things. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. Matthew 24, 36 says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. You go, wait a minute. Are you telling me that God the Son doesn't know something God the Father knows? I'm telling, I just read what he said. I didn't tell you anything. I just read what he said. So yes, if it confuses and bothers you, it confuses and bothers me. All I know is that his return is going to be sudden. Nobody knows what's happening other than the Father. In Christ's return, we know that it's going to be powerful and glorious I want to refer you back to Zechariah chapter 14. That looked like a whole lot of power. That looked like a whole lot of glory. When he returns, it's going to be majestic. Christ's return will be sudden, unexpected, powerful, glorious. It's going to be known by everyone. Matthew 24, 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Who? All the tribes of the earth. How is that going to happen? I can tell you, just like I've told you earlier, I have no idea. I have no idea how they're all going to know. I just know he said they're going to. It's going to be sudden, unexpected, powerful, glorious, known by everyone. Daniel 2, 
44 says it will be filled with judgment. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What's going to stand forever? The kingdom that is coming with that son of man identified in the book of Daniel. So we know that it's going to be judgment-filled. It's going to be known by everybody. It's going to be powerful and glorious, and it's going to be unexpected. But is it going to happen? Just as sure as Christ came the first time, he will come again. It's just the facts. Well, what's the debate about? Well, the debate is how we fight under the umbrella. The debate is about how these things are going to come about. The debate is about what things are going to come first. The debate is about when all of these things that we all believe or that we all trust as trustworthy in the scripture, how is this all going to come about? And all of this stems from a difference in biblical interpretation. First of all, I want to show you a picture. The next slide should be a picture about what we all agree on. It's the what, the when, the how. Let me just show you this. Everybody believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everybody believes in the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. Everyone who has an orthodox understanding of the Christian faith believes that Jesus is coming back to this earth. And everyone believes that once Christ returns, that we're going to go into eternity. Whatever that looks like, whether it's heaven, earth, between, however all of that is going to be, everyone believes it's going to happen. We just don't know What? The argument, the debate, the healthy discussion between fellow believers happens about this middle area about how is that all going to take place. And it involves about four different things. Let me tell you about these four different things. It's a debate over the rapture. It's a debate over what is a great tribulation. It is a debate over the second coming. And it's a debate over the millennium. Now, you don't have these in your notes, but I would encourage you to write down any of this that you would like to. Well, what is the rapture? The rapture is something that we discover in several parts of Scripture, specifically the New Testament, but most specifically in 1 Thessalonians three seventeen. It's a time when Jesus will return suddenly, and in the air will snatch away his bride. It's what the New Testament teaches about Jesus' return and his bride being taken to be with him so that they might have that wedding celebration. That's a term that most theologians call the rapture. Well, what then is the tribulation? The tribulation or the great tribulation is something that we find all throughout scripture, especially in the prophecies where destruction and Israel being judged is talking about. And in many of the major prophets, we find these allusions. And then when Jesus in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and one being taken, the other being left and everybody running for the hills, most folks understand that as a connection 
to what is found in Revelation 7:14, which is called a time of great tribulation, a time of great trouble, a time of great physical uh, uh, distress and fear, the likes that the world has never known. Most folks understand the tribulation as a seven-year period following the rapture of the church when God will purify and judge Israel for the rejection of the Messiah and prepare them to receive the promises that he made to their people through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. Most within our circle will understand this to be a specific period of time. Well, when will that happen and how will that take place? Well, that's where the argument is found. Well, what about this millennium? What is this? This is a, this is a term used about the kingdom references in the Old Testament. I believe it's Isaiah who will tell us about how that they will take the, uh, they will take the short swords and they will bang them into plows because we don't need swords anymore because there'll be peace. And you talk, you hear about the lion laying down with a lamb. You talk about kids playing with poisonous serpents because apparently this, this scriptural illusion talks about how that, that there's not going to be the same types of curse like things going on in the world and, and most would understand that that would be about something to come in the future well there are some in our circle who would say that is tied to a, a portion of scripture in revelations 21 through 6 which talks about a thousand year reign of jesus on this earth a thousand being a millennia and that being known as the millennium so jesus return has to do with rapture, tribulation. It has to do with second coming and judgment and millennium. And how does all of that work? Won't have time to explain all that, the debate, because that's not what we're doing. We're doing the essentials. The essential is that Jesus is coming. But just to kind of give you a sneak peek, the next slide should show you just a little bit about what we believe. Just in case you wonder, we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and that the next thing to happen will be his coming to get his bride. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to escape trouble, that as Americans, that we're going to somehow live in luxury and then be catapulted into super-duper luxury. No, I think it could get really difficult for Christians in America. Maybe it should already be difficult for Christians in America if we truly were following Christian ideals. But I believe Jesus will return in the air. We believe that a tribulation time of seven years will happen just after at which time we will return with Christ to this earth for him to set up his millennial kingdom where we will reign and rule with him. That's where we fall. But the essential is, in the future, Jesus Christ will physically return to this earth. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse number 11. What does that have to do with today? Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what it has to do. As they heard these things, he, being Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, 10 amounts of money. And said to them, 
Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in the very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have laid away in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you. Because you're a severe man. You take what you don't deposit and reap what you don't sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus tells this story to the disciples who are wondering, oh my, when is this kingdom going to come? You're going to set up a throne and when is this going to happen, Lord? And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 slow down, fellas. There's something bigger than you living, just waiting for, for me to come and to sit up. There's, there is the obedience to be done today. Well, what is this? Well, the story breaks down into the characters. What are they? Well, the master is Jesus. The master went out to gather himself a kingdom. Well, who are these servants? Well, they're the disciples, his followers. Jesus says, this noble man goes to get a kingdom and he brings his servants to him and he says, here's what I have for you to do. Then there are the subjects. Who are the subjects? Well, they're his enemies. They're the ones who don't want him. You, you know what's interesting that, he, that they're the subjects? Is that they're his people and they don't wreck it. They won't be his people. They're a part of his place and yet they won't accept his authority. So you got the master, Jesus. You've got the servants, the disciples who are his followers. And you've got his subjects who are his enemy. The master supplied the servants with the investment resources. You know what the master didn't say? The master didn't say, all right, you go out and find you some money and put it to work and make me some money. No, he didn't. He took from his own and gave it to them. On Wednesday night this past week around the fire, I encouraged our students with a verse from uh, 2 Peter chapter number 2, verse number 3, where Peter says, God has provided for us everything we need for living a godly life. 
And we talked about all of the things that God has provided for us who by faith have trusted in the one who is our substitution, who was crucified in our place and for our sin, was raised to secure our victory. What are we to do? We're to live for him. Well, how are we to do it? By using what God's given us. What are some of the things God's given us? He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us a community of believers around us. He's given us uh, uh, prayer, direct access to him. He's given us everything we need. So the master pulls his servants and says, I'm going to go away. I don't want you sitting around watching the horizon like Bugs Bunny waiting on the mailman to bring his package. I want you to be busy. So here's my resources. Now put them to work while I'm gone. The servants were charged to invest. Take what I've given you and work it. Put it to practice. Invest with it. When he came back, what did he discover? He discovered that his servants had gone out and worked. And the one who came with a return was blessed with a reward. The servants were charged to invest and the return depended on the servant's faithfulness. I've come back, master, and I've brought you 10 more for the 10 you gave me. And what did the master say? Give him rulership over 10 cities. Master, I've come with, with, with five more than you gave me. Bless him with five cities. I, I don't think that Jesus was saying that he's going to be, uh, I don't think that Jesus is saying that, that his love for us depends on what we do, but I do think he's showing us how that our rewards will be in keeping with our faithfulness and how we've used them. The return depended on the servant's faithfulness. The reward was huge compared to the resources invested, but it depended on the servant's return you see God has given us resources he's given us gifts to be worked when he returns he wants to reward it but that's going to be based on how we've employed what he's given us as his children ultimately we see the master's enemies had a voice all the way to the end what, what did they say? We don't want him. And we don't see that the enemies of the master having, having any judgment on them until he returned. So it sounds to me like they were just yapping the whole time he was gone. How do we put this? That Christ, They wanted to know, when you're coming back, Jesus, when can we expect? He goes, don't, don't fret over that. I'm going, I'm going to return. While I'm gone, I'm giving you of my resources. I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back. And I want to find that you have invested what I've given you, that you've put to work what I have given you. Now, what is it that Jesus has given us to do? Represent him. Now, it's no longer in vogue to wear the bracelets of what, did, what would Jesus do? WWJD. That's not, that's not popular anymore. But as we live daily, that's exactly how we need to be organizing every aspect of our life. 
Well, what would Jesus do? What has Jesus said to do? How would Jesus act? How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus forgive? How would Jesus pursue? How would Jesus, how would Jesus? He's given us the resources, everything we need, Peter tells us. So how do we apply that? What do we go out of here today having just learned that, yep, Jesus is coming back. Well, here's the questions. Based on the parable that Jesus told, we need to understand some things. Number one, you aren't manufacturing for Christ. God does not have you on assembly line or, or making widgets for him. God is not coming to check how many of that that you've made for him. You're not manufacturing for Jesus. You are investing his resources given to you. You're putting to work what he's given you to use. Second, the master cultivates the return. The master cultivates the return. You cannot accurately compare yourself to other servants. We're all waiting on Jesus to return, those of us who, who know him as Savior. It's the master who's deciding how to reward. The last thing we need to be doing is walking along going, well, you know what? I got a, I got a few steps on Mike. As long as I got a few steps on Mike, that means I'm going to get more Mike and I'll be in better shape. Than-. No, that's not how it works because it's the master who's doing the calculating. It's us who are to be faithful. And quite frankly, you don't know what Mike's got going on as he uses his resources given to him. We need to focus on ourselves and be busy. There's another parable. Maybe we'll do it another day that speaks directly to that. Number three, pressing to receive a reward is not a bad thing. Pressing to receive a reward is not bad. Jesus has told us, I want you to be faithful because you know there's going to be a reward. And that's not a bad thing. Laziness is a bad thing. Which one of those servants got chastised? Did you notice that the one that brought five didn't get scolded because he didn't bring as much as the first one did? No, he got rewarded. Which one of them got scolded? The one who took what the master gave him and hid it because he's too afraid to put it to work. He's the one that the master says, well, what happened? Why didn't, you put, why didn't you at least go put it in the bank? Why didn't you at least do something easy with it? Why? Because he wants us representing him. That's his plan. That's his program. That's our responsibility. Number four, the master's enemies, you know who they are. The master's enemies will be in your ears and face. So get used to it. We've been left here waiting on the Lord to return. We believe he's returning. We've been given resources to use. We've been given uh, resources to invest. And guess what? There are subjects of his that don't want to have anything to do with him or anything to do with you other than try to get in your way and make your life miserable. And based on the parable, we get to deal with that till the master returns. So we get used to it. And you know what we do? We put blinders on. Stay busy. Well, they're going to hate me. Well, they hated him first. Well, they're going to talk about me. Well, they're talking about him. Well, they're not going to like me. That's not what Jesus left us to do, be liked. He left us to represent him, giving us everything we need. So the question remains, are your given resources being invested or hidden?
The essential is in the future. And could that be soon? Absolutely. In the future, Jesus Christ is going to physically return to this earth. And we believe he's going to set up his kingdom when he does. And we believe that's going to be the celebration we're looking for. The question is, when the master returns, are the given resources that you have as a follower of Jesus going to be presented having been faithfully invested? Or are you going to have to go dig them out of the closet and say, so what are you saying? I'm saying God has given you everything you need to do what he's called you to do. And if you hadn't been doing that, then today would be a great day for you to at least take this step. Father, I think I've been hiding. I think I've been doing my thing. I think I've been investing what I want to invest of what I got instead of doing with what you've given me for your glory. So, Father, today I just want to, number one, tell you I'm sorry for living my life for me instead of for you. I just want to ask, would you let me, would you let me start over today and begin living my life for you? If you're a follower of Jesus, that can be your prayer today. And I believe that the Holy Spirit that's, that's dwelling with you will lead you into that path. It won't be easy. You, you'll want to quit just as soon as you get out the door. But I believe he'll lead, lead you in that path. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that may be what you need to say today. Or maybe it's just, you know what? I just need to be reminded that he's coming. I got to get busy again. I got to stoke that fire. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, the message of Scripture puts you in the position of his enemy. The one who's not going to be excited at his return. There's no reason for you to be his enemy when by God's grace, he's been provided as your substitute. He's been provided as your Savior. The Master has taken all of your sin and guilt on himself paid for it so that you might be a part of the family so that you might be a servant so that you might be one who's given to invest for the glory of the master in anticipation of him coming home and getting you and the party begins and being with our bridegroom if you don't know jesus if you've never trusted him if you've never by faith believed and today's the day to put essential number four to practice that is Salvation is received by faith alone and Christ alone. And it looks like Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. But I believe you died for me. I believe you raised, were raised again. I believe you're alive. I want to be, I want to be yours. Will you forgive me? We save me. Can I be your child? I want to follow you. That's true. If you believe in your heart, Confess with your mouth, the scripture says, you will be saved. That'd be a great thing to celebrate. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the truth that your son is returning physically. I think it's going to be spectacular. I really don't know what to expect, but I know he's coming back. Father, I know he's coming back to, to take his followers to be with him wherever he is and I know that there is judgment to follow for those that are his enemies because they've rejected him because they didn't want him because he wasn't good enough for them Father I just pray that you will draw the heart of that one who's never trusted Jesus as Savior 
I pray that you will help them to see their sin and their absolute inability to change their situation. May they recognize, God, that you love them and that you demonstrated it by giving your son. Father, may they be drawn to place their faith fully, completely in the person of Jesus who died in their place and for their sin. Father, I ask that you will encourage your children with the truth that Christ is returning. It could be today. Today is a day we can put to work what you've given us obediently. I pray that you will give us the courage to just admit where we're at, what we need. God, that we'll take a step toward you and putting your resources to work in our life, striving to be a reflection of Jesus to those who are around us. God, I thank you for the opportunity to worship. I thank you for your presence. We ask that, uh, that Father, your will be accomplished in each one of our lives. We know there are those that are sick, those that are hurting, those that are in need. I pray they will recognize your, uh, your care and that they will want to simply cast their care on you because you care for them. First in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said.